Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 146th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Ross Levin. Ross is the co-founder and CEO of Accredited Investors Wealth Management, an independent RA based in the Minneapolis area that oversees nearly $2 billion of assets under management for 475 affluent clients. What's unique about Ross, though, is the way he systematized the financial planning process across the firm by developing his own wealth management index that prompts clients with specific exploratory questions in each of the core financial planning topic areas and converts the results into a score that clients can use to track their progress over time. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Ross develops his wealth management index system, the relative balance of delving into the technical topic areas of financial planning versus trying to ask the right questions to explore the client side of those issues in the first place, why it's so important to have a systematized process to do both thorough data gathering and track how clients are progressing in those areas, and why ultimately Ross decided to retain the wealth management index questions, but actually stop tracking clients' progress scores over time. We also talk about the path that Ross went through in building accredited investors to become a multi-billion dollar RA with more than 50 employees, the in-depth hiring process they've developed in conjunction with an outside industrial psychologist to ensure prospective hires will be a good fit for the firm's we-over-me team-oriented culture, the succession plan the firm has established after losing an initial succession partner that has now brought in more than 10 additional shareholders and will eventually force the co-founders to sell all their shares over the next decade and the personal mental shift that Ross went through in the early years to better appreciate the value of having a partner who was less focused on business development, but more focused on actually building and scaling the business systems and staff of accredited investors itself. And be certain to listen to the end, where Ross reflects on the challenge of trying to remain a small, big firm that focuses more on increasing services to clients rather than just trying to get bigger. The way the firm is aiming to leverage technology to get really fast at the fast work so that they can have more time to do the slow work of client conversations and building relationships. And why Ross believes that the most important thing for advisors to do in building their own advisory business is to figure out what they want to be first, or risk, as Ross puts it, ending up with successful businesses but bankrupt lives. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Ross Levin. Welcome, Ross Levin, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hi, Michael. I'm uh, I'm really grateful to be here, and I'm honored to be speaking with you. I'm I'm looking forward to the the discussion today because you are one of the few advisors I think who has put a lot of really good, deliberate thought behind this challenge. I think is become more and more apparent to me in in living in our advisory world, particularly as it's evolved over the the past 20 years or so, which is we do all this advice stuff for clients and we have all of this focus on creating the plan and analyzing all the different areas and giving them all of this different advice. And we've got financial planning software tools that do that. But the reality in a financial planning relationship and an ongoing wealth management relationship is 
that's like the first six months of a 30 year relationship. Because a lot of us really only have two or 3% turnover rates. So, you know, like average tenure of a client is, is measured in decades. And I feel like we have all this stuff about how to do planning and engage clients in the first six months, and basically nothing about what you're supposed to do or track how you're doing with clients for the next 29 and a half years after the first six months. And so I remember being struck pretty early on in my career reading this book that you had put out, I think originally back in the mid-90s, called The Wealth Management Index, which was, I guess, like your very systematized version of what exactly are all the different areas that we do planning for clients in, you know, asset protection, disability, investments, estate, which I, which we sort of know because we live that in our CFP curriculum already. But then you had this whole list of like questions you ask, things you evaluate, and you would score clients. You had this like, I forget what it was, like 50 point checklist of all the different things that you could score clients in from, you know, they haven't even worked on this to they're working on it, to they've completed it. And so you would get this score, which you called your wealth management index, like you would get this score of how clients were doing. And then as you help them through their stuff over time, you could track how the score changed. And, and I just, I was fascinated by it then. I'm fascinated by it still, this idea of how do we start to more proactively engage clients on an ongoing basis and just, I don't know, either figure out if we're making progress or show them if they're making progress. And so I'm really curious, just, I know you wrote the book, does it does it work this way in practice? Like, are you doing this in in the firm? Can you talk to us about what you've learned in this 20 plus year journey of how do we actually work with clients on an ongoing basis and figure out how they're doing and if they're making progress? Yes. Thanks for asking that, Michael. You know, I wrote the book, uh, I've got two versions of the book, but I wrote the, the first book in, I think, 1995 or 1996. So, if you think about where I was in my life at that at that point and where financial planning was, that was I'm 60 now, so that was 20 what 23 or 24 years ago. And what's interesting about that time, I was in my mid 30s, and what I was trying to understand and try to do was codify what success looks like in financial planning. And what I was really trying to do was bring the the relational with the technical. And I really wanted to focus on the why. What was interesting, and this is true for financial planners, you know, when you there, there's kind of the old story that when financial planners die and go to heaven, they can either meet God or they can go to the lecture on God and they all choose the lecture on God. And I think what what happens with the book is that everyone was really excited about the scoring piece and the technical piece. But to me, the most important aspect of the book were the questions around that led to the scoring. So for example, have you articulated a life insurance philosophy? Allows you to have a discussion with your clients about what it means to own life insurance, what they want to think about related to life insurance. And it was this discussion piece that would then lead into the analysis and the uh, results and those kind of things. And so what I think- Because I know you had a very structured list of like, areas and 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 questions and like just all the things that you would ask them about or or evaluate just kind of again like checklist style like you know you have you know has anyone taken a look at the business structure 
And then, you know, have you done a business valuation? And do you have a buy-sell agreement? And is it funded with life insurance? And do you have a version for disability? And, and, right, and just sit across from a business owner and start talking about those questions. And what starts is kind of a technical conversation, like, are you an S-corp or an LLC? And have you established a buy-sell agreement? Then quickly becomes, are you actually developing the talent within your business to create sustainable value beyond you? And like, how are you handling the issue where your son is in the business, but your COO wants to take over and you're trying to figure out how to navigate that, right? And you you, you quickly go from the technical questions to some very, very personal questions and dynamics around around planning issues. Right. I, and in fact, and I would say for us, and I think different firms who implemented this and the feedback that I got from others is different firms did it differently. So I would say for us, we always started with the questions because I my, my fundamental belief and what hasn't changed for a long o- over the years is that the technical stuff you have to be good at, and that is table stakes, because everyone has to be good at the technical stuff because technical mistakes can cause big problems. But a lot of the technical work, and especially now we're seeing, and this wasn't the case 25 years ago, but a lot of the technical things, artificial intelligence can take over for us. So we're seeing what TurboTax has done to general accounting, and we're seeing what you know some of the betterment, some of those different things have done to investment planning. So the thing that doesn't change is really developing a really clear and, and uh, understanding of your client and having a relationship with them so that that you understand why you're doing the technical stuff. So for example, this is you know just an obvious thing that happened last week, but one of our clients came in. They have a $2 million house. They have a daughter who's a veterinarian. She's 29 years old. They were trying to figure out a way to have her be able to buy buy the house from them. To, so to finance what would make the most sense in financing the house. So in maybe 30 years ago, I might have pulled out my spreadsheet and created different ways that they could do interfamily loans and do all of those kinds of things that would uh, create the easiest way for her to buy the house. But instead, we pulled back and we asked the question, why do you want your 29-year-old veterinarian to own a $2 million house? And that to me is the difference between the human interaction that is required, I think, to do financial planning and the the things that artificial intelligence will take over. It's a good point that, you know, the I think there's been similar criticisms around even some of the robo-advisors and their, and their allocations, uh, you know, this, this sort of difference between using AI or, or just kind of algorithmic analysis to say, you know, here's my inputs in a question, analyze me and answer. You know, as you said, like, we can spreadsheet out, you know, how to do intra-family loans and, and try to make these payments. But, you know, the, the, the robo-advisor never asks you, well, you know, have you considered not saving for your retirement at all and just working on your student loans first or saving for your house first or saving for your marriage first? Like, you know, if you say you want to put money in the portfolio, we'll number crunch the best way to allocate it. But sort of these bigger why questions, like why are you putting your resources this direction in the first place, tend not to come up. And and I, I think you illustrate it in the uh, excellent way here as well. Like, you know, we can do the analysis to say, what are the economic and financial planning strategies to transfer your $2 million house to your 29-year-old daughter? But the bigger question is, why exactly are we trying to get a $2 million house to your 29-year-old daughter 
in the first place. Like, where where exactly are we going with this? Like, does she want it? Do you want to give it to her? You just want it in the family? Are you really just trying to give her some wealth value? Like, there's a lot of why questions here that could completely take the strategy in a different direction, which you don't get to if you start with the number crunching and don't don't get back to the why questions first. Right. So I think what's changed over the last several years is that the Wealth Management Index, which we used originally as a, as a scoring mechanism so people could see how they were doing, we still use the, the Wealth Management Index as a way to make sure that we're covering all the bases in the financial planning piece, but we actually don't do the scoring anymore. And the reason we don't do the scoring, at least for us, and this we, we may go back to it, but the primary reason we don't do the scoring is that clients uh, want to understand how they're doing towards their objectives, but they don't necessarily want to be scored on it, especially clients, you know, for us, and every every firm is different, but, you know, we have clients that, that, you know, would be uh, affluent, somewhat affluent, uh, are competitive. Uh, They, they want to succeed in the different things that they're doing. And so sometimes we, we found that scoring can actually make clients feel more anxious rather than less anxious. And so what we really want to do is make sure that clients understand that that financial planning is a process. So we're going to get to all of these different things and that if they are not doing some of the things that they have told us they want to be doing, we want to explore why that's the case because there's a there's an, a fundamental or underlying issue around that. Yesterday we were talking to a client. They're Rhode Islanders, but they've lived in California for five years. They haven't done their estate planning. They haven't put their Rhode Island property in a trust yet. They go through, you know, they pass away and go through California probate. It's very different than Rhode Island. And, but they haven't gone through the the steps yet. They know they should, but there's, there's something that is holding them back. And so until we understand what's holding them back, the fact that they haven't done it is not as meaningful because they know they should do it. They haven't done it. There's a reason that they haven't done it. Interesting. So, th- so there's kind of this dynamic then, I guess, that so you get one subset of clients who are either pretty good at doing the things that you recommend. So they probably like the scoring system because they do the things you recommend and their score goes up. Then, then I can imagine there's kind of the second set of clients that essentially like to play the game. You know, they, they may or may not have followed through on their stuff, but the minute I put a scoring thing in front of them and like their achiever mentality kicks in, they'll be like, well, I, darn it, I'm going to do everything that, that they recommended because I just want to get my score to be a 99, right? And, and they get focused on that. But then you get clients in the other end where they have trouble making, they have trouble implementing, they have trouble following through on items, or maybe there's just some some other blocking points, you know, the you know, the real reason I haven't worked on my will is not because I don't know I need a will. It's because I don't want to face the conversation with my estranged child about whether I'm going to disinherit them or not. So the easiest thing to do is to just not work on my will. And if you put a scoring system in front of them and start debiting them for not doing their stuff, at some point, it's just, I guess, for their own rate, like it either feels like you're badgering them or it just feels negative or this just isn't funny anymore. Like I'm not doing it. I got my reasons. I'm not doing it. So doggone it. Stop penalizing me with your silly scoring system. And, and I guess that's part of what you were finding. Like the, the clients who are good at doing this stuff, the scoring system was motivating, but for the others, it was actually demotivating. Right. Yes. And I think another piece, and you know, it's interesting, and I don't know, I'd, I'd love your take on this because I've seen your writing evolve that initially the technical 
stuff gave me great comfort because I was young in the field. I was working with people that were older than me who had more resources than I had, more successful than I was. And the technical piece was a way to level the playing field. And what's changed, I think, over time is that as I've had more life experiences and some of the things that I thought were important became less important, and the technical piece is is an and, it's not an or. And what really became clear was that I needed to connect values to everything that we were doing and making sure that, that the client was actually connected to their money because most clients, frankly, aren't. They don't understand what they have or don't what they have, you know, what they don't have. And, you know, it's it's interesting because, Michael, I think when you started writing, you were writing a lot about technical stuff and you've really evolved your own writing into more of the blend between meaning and money. Yeah, I, I, I think I would certainly, uh, well, so like certainly concur. I think that's where kind of the the evolution has been for me, everything from, you know, what I write about and speak about to you know, conversations that I end out with and with clients and prospects, you know, I I spend less time in front of clients than I used to, but, you know, still end out in those conversations from time to time with, with clients of the firm or, or prospective clients who are considering it. And, and yeah, there is a piece that I think you said, well, like you do have to have the technical jobs, the technical stuff, like, if you want to get fired really quickly and just actually screw something up for a client that has significant dollars for at stake. And like, I don't really care how good relationship you are. Like if you screw something up badly enough because you just flat out didn't know what you were doing, you're, you're going to get fired. And it's not just, it's not even just because the actual like financial consequences of whatever your bad advice caused. It's that if you screw something up that badly, your client fundamentally won't trust you anymore. Because you, you're, you're, you, you're viewed as not having competence. And if they don't trust you, then all the rest of the stuff doesn't work anyway. So the, the, the relationship's kind of trashed. So no question, like you have to get all the technical stuff right. And, you know, I don't, I don't regret at all the, the amount of time I spent focusing on all the technical stuff in the early stages of my career. But, but I, I think you said it well with your example earlier that I, I think there's this piece to just how you, evolve and grow as an advisor that step one is the client comes in and says i want to transfer the house to my 29 year old daughter and and you got to know how interfamily loans work and imputed interest and gift tax complications and all the rest because if you if they really want to do that and you put an id and you put a strategy out there and it's wrong and causes in that case a tax blow up like you have a serious issue so you have to you have to know that stuff but then at some point the conversation shifts and when the client says like, hey, can you help me uh, implement this strategy? You say, well, sure. You know, I got a lot of ideas about how we can do that. There's these things called qualified personal residence trusts and intrafamily loan strategies and, and gifts and a lot of cool things. But I, I, I just want to pause for a moment and ask, like, I'm just wondering why exactly do you want to give a 29-year-old veterinarian your ha- your $2 million house? Like, can you just give me a little more context about why we're going down this road. And then we can talk about some strategies about how to do it. And then you find out an hour later, you're still talking about the why question <laughs> and all these other family and personal dynamics that have come forth. And you haven't even gotten back to the, the technical implementation issue, nor, nor may you because the conversation can end up going in an entirely different direction by the time you get to the bottom of this, this discussion. I kind of view it as a, a progression about how we develop our skills, which I think is even getting reflected now in, in how 
firms, particularly large firms, are making career tracks. And and I'd be curious to know if if uh, you know, your firm has implemented something similar. You know, we we've done a version of this at, at Pinnacle that you know, in essence, like the first tier of your career is sort of the para planner, associate planner role, and like your job is to learn your technical stuff and prove you know it. So you get your CFP certification, you do a ton of plans and tax analyses and investment analyses and all, all the different stuff, whatever it is you do in your firm. Like you got to learn your technical chops, practice them and prove that you know them if you want to move up. But then if you move up, now you're in more of, an, of a service advisor client facing role and your primary skill set is no longer the technical stuff. You are presumed to know that and not screw it up. Now you actually have to learn all the relationshipy stuff. Like how do you how do you actually manage a client relationship? How do you actually manage expectations? How do you introduce difficult conversations and not have someone get defensive, angry, or fire you? You know, how do you talk a client off the ledge when they're freaked out about results or some outcome and you want to keep them as a client and help them not do something bad to themselves? And and then even from there, I think there's a third tier that emerges of like, okay, great, now you're good at managing the relationships of your existing clients. Now, do you know how to establish relationships with new ones? And go do business development. And and that there's kind of this progression. Like you don't want to do too much relationshipy stuff before you do the technical stuff, or you just give like very well-meaning, completely incompetent advice, which is not good. But it but the journey doesn't end at the technical stuff. Like that's that's just stage one on this like five, 10, 15 year journey that I think most advisors go through before you really get good at the whole thing. Right. And you know what's interesting for us, you know, for our firm, so much has changed over the last several years. First of all, we're way bigger than I ever thought we'd be. You know, we have around 50 people. We kind of believe that everyone is an expert in something, but no one is an expert in any in everything. You're probably excluded from that. But I would say that we have teams for all our all our clients. So all our clients have four people working with each of them. We have essentially three wealth managers and an investment analyst. We created uh, education spas, so we call in experts in different areas, whether it's Social Security. We have someone who's visited all the uh, continuous care facilities around here and takes clients through the through what, that. You, did you say you call them spas? Yeah, we call them spas. Uh, I, I, I got to remember what they are. I think they're called special purpose, whatever, and everyone is responsible for something. Okay, okay. So like this spa is an acronym. We're not like, we're not actually calling back going to the spa here. Okay, <laughs> okay. We have specialists. So we have, you know, someone, even though we have attorneys on staff and CPAs on staff, we have a philanthropy and director of estate planning that call, that gets called in for complicated things. We have a tax specialist that gets called in for complicated things. But most important, we have career tracks. And those career tracks can be, you could be on a purely technical track, or you can be on a track that will get you more into a client-facing role. And you really get to pick which track you want to be on. And the primary objective for us is to move people into the place they should be when they're ready rather than when we're ready. And the challenges with with a lot of firms, I think, is that you have a pyramid structure. And so you either need someone to leave or you need the, the business to grow dramatically in order to advance. And we're trying to avoid that because we believe the critical challenge for us over the next 10 years is still going to be a people challenge. And we need to make sure that we can create an atmosphere that the right people working with the right clients. And uh, if we get that right, I think that we're going to be in really good shape going forward. 
So, so can you talk to us a little bit more about that? I, I, I mean, I think you have a really, a really dead on point about this dynamic that most firms, and I think just most businesses in general, kind of have a, a hierarchical pyramid structure, and and you know you move up the pyramid over time. But the fact that people in leadership have multiple direct reports means kind of the pyramid branches out as the levels get uh, get lower, which means you end up with this dynamic that lots of you know lots of people are all competing to move up to fewer higher level jobs and so at some point uh, you know you get outcompeted or you just got to wait for someone to leave or die or otherwise move up themselves so you can move up the ladder and and uh, you know depending on the nature of the firm like that can create some friction that can create some bottlenecks the the easiest solution for a lot of firms is just keep growing because if you keep growing, you add more positions to the whole organizational chart from top to bottom. So there's more opportunities for your team to move up. But you you seem to be implying some other non-pyramid structure so that, is, as you put it, like uh, people can move up when they're ready instead of when you're ready as a firm. So what does this organizational chart or structure looks like? Like how how are you doing this so that you don't either either have these bottlenecks or create these bottlenecks. Well, I think there's a few things that that you have to accept in order for this to work and and this took us a while to figure out and again, you know, everything is is an experiment in a lot of ways. First of all, I think that what what changed for us, it didn't change for us, but what what became really clear is the values of the firm were taking precedent over everything else. So when you think about our firm, one of the key areas that we have is we over me. So it's really important for us to have a team concept and everyone in the firm has to have a team. It has to be a team player. We don't pay for business development. At the end of the year, we give a profit sharing that everyone participates in. We we pay, what we like to say is that we, we try to pay top comp but we don't bonus people. So we use all those comp studies and, and we try to pay comp at the rate that, that people show for comp plus bonuses and make that their actual salary uh, as opposed to giving performance bonuses because we, we have very high expectations for people. But if you're comfortable with those high expectations, you're not competing internally you're just competing to improve the firm. So one of the key aspects in order to make this work is that ego has to be subjugated enough so that you're willing to share responsibilities with others. And and if you're not, then that's one of the things that creates the bottleneck. And I think it's one of the big challenges in succession planning because I think that a lot of times founders in, in particular have a very hard time letting go of things. And one of the things that I have found is that in order to be a good leader, you have to be a good follower. And if you can draw from everyone in the organization in different ways, people can find their places more quickly. Now, you still require growth. The organization still has to grow, especially when you're doing succession planning because you're selling stock on a, you know, EBITDA multiple and the banks, you know, if you're using outside financing like we are, the banks require a certain kind of succession, but you need to grow anyway in order, I think, in order to create create sufficient opportunities for the, for the next generation to uh, be as financially successful as the first generation was. You know, th- this, this kind of we over me framework that you set forth we don't, we don't pay for business development. Everybody 
effectively participates in in business development because they get their they get their profit sharing bonus at the end of the year. How do you end out in a world where people just don't don't do business development? Say like I'm not I'm not incentivized for it, or or I, or I guess alternatively that you when you get people who are really good at business development, they say. Well, you know, I'm actually so good at business development. I just think I'm going to go to another firm that actually will pay me for the business development because I'll make a a lot more money or or get more equity or have more partnership or whatever it is at the other firm. Like there's a to me, there's a competitive dynamic to that as well, not within the firm, but in keeping your team members who are good business developers. So, how have you found this plays out for you in in I guess how how you just get people on board with business development or keep people who are good at business development. I think there's a couple things about that, and I th- you're you're absolutely right with what you're describing. The first thing is who we're hiring, and one of the things that we do is every single person in the firm goes through psychological testing. We use an outside industrial psychologist, and whether it's a receptionist or whether it's a wealth manager, they're they're going through testing. And that testing helps us identify who, who the lone rangers are versus who the team players are. And in the past, we have had, before we did the psychological testing, we have had people that wouldn't fit in the organization because they didn't fit that culture of, of we over me. I think the second thing is that we've created an environment where the right kind of people, the people that fit our firm, really, it works well for them. So we don't believe in balance. We believe in harmony. And what I mean by that is that there are times where work is going to be extremely busy and you're going to have to put in the hours. And there's going to be a lot of times when you you want to go to your kid's soccer game or you want to do that, and we want to create an environment for that. So we have five days a week of paid volunteer time off that they can use to work with whatever charity they want, or they could work with their kids at their school. We have very generous paid time off. We give extra days around holidays for, so if people will need to travel or whatever, they can, they, they can get away. And then we, we comp people fairly. We have everyone, our, our, our belief is, and I don't think I'm being Pollyannish about this. I really believe that it's worked for us is that if you service the heck out of your clients, you're going to grow the business. And so 75% of our business still comes from existing clients. We have one of the shareholders in the firm is responsible for our firm growth initiatives. We don't call it business development. We call it firm growth. And she's so much better at it than I was. And I used to be the one that was in charge of it. And what what she has done, I think, that has really been helpful. She would be great on a podcast with you, Michael. She has really helped um, create systems around firm growth. Systems include, like tonight, we're having an event. One of the reporters from uh, Minnesota Public Radio is coming to t- speak to a group of clients and invited guests on We Know How This Ends, which is around living while dying, which is something that she's written about. And so we're going to have probably around 150 people coming to an event like this. Many of them aren't clients, but many of them are invited by clients. And they get a chance to see our firm, understand our values, understand whether we're a good fit. Because from a from a uh, a client standpoint, we don't want to close on 100% of the people that come into the office. We want to work with the clients that need and value 
uh, in-depth advice and relationship and are willing to pay for it. So those are, those are the right kinds of clients for us. And so we have to make sure that we're, we're finding those. Our firm growth person finds opportunities for staff to be engaged and she follows up with the staff. And she's, you know, she happens to be extremely extroverted. I'm an outgoing introvert, but she's an extrovert to the max. And so she goes to a lot of uh, events and things like that, where she meets a lot of different people. One of the things that we're trying to do, and we've said this all along, is for the firm to succeed for the next generation. They don't want me to get smaller. They want everyone else to get bigger. And we have to make sure that that's happening. So, you know, I write a column for the newspaper that that gets a twice a month column on money and values for the newspaper. So there's people in the community who know of me, but but the firm has a team approach and the firm is much bigger than I am. And in fact, you you know this, when one of our partners left a few years ago, we we didn't know how that would work because she was responsible for a third of the business, but we lost, I think, roughly 5% of the business. And the reason clients stayed was because they have a, a team and the team represented more than any individual on the team. And that includes me and it includes, you know, my, my other founding partner, Will. I think there's a, there's a powerful point in that, that a, a lot of firms miss about the, the team dynamic beyond just more people to serve the clients and do more things for them as long as, you know, your, your clients pay you enough for the economics to work. I think it's something, ironically, the, the wirehouses seem to have figured out long before uh, most of the independent firms did, which is from a, you know, a, a competition for talent perspective or, or the dynamic of what happens if you lose an advisor. If you service clients with a team across the firm, then if an advisor leaves, even if they were the primary client-facing person, they're often not the only client-facing person. And if clients have a relationship with two, three, four, five different people on the team with your firm, then if one person leaves, even if it was the advisor at the head of the team, it's much more likely you can retain the clients by just you know, getting another good advisor in there to continue working with the team that the client already knows and and holding on to them. Or or conversely, you know, if you're if your competitors want to lure away your top talent and actually get the clients to go along, they don't just have to lure the advisor, they have to get the high, entire team. <laughs> they have to get all the people. And, and that's much harder because not every team member necessarily wants to change firms and disrupt their lives. And they may be they may be happy there if the advisor was not. And just there's a there's kind of a robustness safety dynamic to the firm of having teams with multiple people at the firm who all interact with the client directly, at least to some extent, that when turnover happens, your risk as a business is reduced because clients weren't solely dependent on one point of contact, where if that point of contact leaves the firm, just the client has no more connection to the firm. So they absolutely they may as well they may as well leave too. And it's more rewarding for the staff because the staff is in the business. They're not they're not working at a manufacturing plant. They want to interact with clients. So the the more the clients see the the group, the better. And we also don't silo teams. So we have a little bit more of a matrix because we're trying to put the right people together. So even what you're describing, if if someone wanted to take a silo away, they wouldn't be able to because the the there's so many different people that are working with the client that that no single person would would be responsible for you know uh, a significant percent of the business the other thing that's a little bit different about our business I don't know how other people 
run, we don't have a single client who represents more than 1% of our revenues. That is incredibly liberating because, you know, even though our retention rate for clients is, you know, high like everyone's, we're not at risk of if something goes wrong with a particular relationship, you know, we, we're going to have to be in trouble. We're not an ad agency. Yeah. Now, out of, out of curiosity, like, is is that because you've you've steered away from having any whale clients or just as it's turned out in the business, you just, you haven't ever ended out with one client that became a, a, a huge dominating portion of the business revenue? I actually think it's it's partly because of the way our fee structure works. So the way our, our fee structure levels out, you know, not completely, but it's essentially, we're, st- we're still an AUM-based fee structure, but above 15 million, it's 25 basis points. So the, the $50 million client and the $20 million client don't create significantly addition, you know, significant more revenue for the firm. So I think that that helps, helps balance things a little oh, bit. Oh, so just the, the fact that your breakpoints get pretty low by the, by the top end means even if someone comes in and has tens of millions of dollars and is significantly above your average client, their revenue contribution to the firm isn't overwhelmingly dominating. It's not like a, a client who's 10x the size pays 10x the fees because they've dropped you know, several tiers on the breakpoint schedule down to a pretty low uh, threshold. Right. I do want to go back for a moment, though, and just ask you, you had talked about putting everyone through personal profi- personality profiles to, to try to figure out whether they're I guess basically like a team, a team oriented person versus a lone ranger. Like not that you can't be successful with both, but your culture clearly uh, leans one way versus the other. And, and you're using an industrial psychologist to do this. So can I ask like, what are the, what are the actual like profiling tools that, that the firm uses that you found works and, and who are you actually working with to help you implement this stuff? Well, the firm the firm we're working with is is in Minnesota. It's called SKS Consultants, and they the it's a it's a different process for wealth managers than it is for uh, secretaries, for example. But the wealth manager process takes a day to a day and a half, and includes individual interviews, includes testing, various kinds of testing for different things and they use a variety of of tests it includes uh, even an inbox kind of thing before we get to the S, uh, SKS we do meetings we have two two of our people in the firm are responsible primarily responsible for hiring Jeremy who's one of our shareholders and Megan who's been with us for several years and is terrific and they set up an interviewing process to see whether the person whether people are comfortable with the person once they the, the once several people in the firm have met the person that's when they go through the testing and then from the testing we get an uh, an individual report back and the report either says you know basically that it's a it's a uh, perfect fit a more good than bad fit not quite a fit or doesn't fit what's interesting michael is that we are much more respectful of the hiring process than we used to be so several years ago we had someone else who was in charge of our hiring and that person would disregard the industrial psychologist testing, which is kind of ironic, because why are you paying a couple thousand dollars for tests that you're not going to look at? And the ones that were not good fits did not turn out to be 
good hires. Like, doggone it, the tool worked. <laughs> the tool worked, yeah. And that's universal. So what's interesting is when you use an industrial psychologist, it doesn't mean you're going to be 100% right. The research that we've seen shows that it increases your success rate from probably 30% to closer to 65 or 70%. So you're still going to have misses. You're just going to have them less frequently. And the other thing is that when someone misses, you're, pr- you're going to be pretty sure why that person's going to miss. So when someone uh, is hired after meeting with the industrial psychologist, we also encourage them to go back and meet with the industrial psychologist so that they can talk about what their weaknesses, what their anticipated weaknesses are, and how to overcome those within the firm structure. So, uh, And then we have a really intensive onboarding process for people. So they meet everyone in the firm. Every single person in the firm sits down with them, talks about what's working, what's not. We have a pretty, I would say that we have an open organization. It's not transparent in the sense that not everyone knows everything that's going on, but we have a very open organization. We're pretty comfortable with sharing what's working and what's not. So in terms of the tools themselves, is this some standardized like Kobe disc, one of those tools? Is this a, a more custom thing that SKS has made for themselves to, it's a to com- vet and evaluate yeah. people? It's a combination of things. We don't, the, I, they don't use the Colby. They don't use the disc. They don't use the Myers-Briggs, but they do have some tests that they have. And what I can do is after this, Michael, if it's helpful, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to the industrial psychologist and get him to get you the list, the tests that we're using. I, sure. That'd be, that'd be great. You know, just if they can share out a sample of, of what that looks like, you know, we're, we're happy to, uh, to list that, put it in the show notes with, with, uh, uh, with the people, with our listeners. So SKS kind of has this, you know, proprietary tools that they use. And so I guess they're, they're kind of overlaying this against their understanding and assessment of your culture to say, this person is a perfect fit or more good than bad or not a fit. Cause what might be a horrible fit for your firm is a perfect fit for someone else. It's not necessarily a, it's not a, this is a good, you know, this is a good human being or a bad human being kind of thing. It's just a, is this person a good fit for your firm and what you do in the way that you do it? That's exactly right. And that's, that's a key point that you're making because what's, what, one of the things that can happen is that, you know, for example, a staff might recommend a, a friend who they think would be a good fit for the firm for whatever reason, and they don't make it through SKS. But as you said, it doesn't mean that they're not competent or it doesn't mean that they're, they're, they shouldn't be in the field. It means that they're not a good fit for the, the way our organization is run. And our organization is different than others. I mean, we've never hired, for example, uh, we've never had a successful hire from a brokerage firm. It doesn't mean we can't, but like you had mentioned before, you know, some of those people are often more, you know, directed towards business, you know, getting business and those kind of things might be more individually competitive rather than team oriented. And those are just things that just don't don't work for us. And we just want to make sure that that just like we want to have the right clients, we want to have the right staff. The risk is when you have a very an organization with a very clear culture like ours is our do you can you be guilty of groupthink and not exploring alternative ways of thinking and and I think that one of the aspects that our cult that that works in our culture generally is that we are comfortable with people who play devil advocate devil's advocate role uh, a devil's advocate role and you know we're comfortable with it because that's probably the role I've played in my entire career. So it's not something that, that we, we shy away from. We, we, we like people questioning what we're doing. And in fact, 
you know, some of the some of the best ideas we've had have come from people lower in the organization than than the leadership. Who who said, wait, what the heck are you guys doing? Exactly. Yeah. Or have you thought about this or or why not? You know, I, I keep thinking, you know, Michael, one of the things that that has made us successful in some ways, and you know, I the you know success is how you want to define it, but but there's a lot of things that we didn't do, and those are counterfactuals. But but sometimes the things that you avoid doing are are what make you more successful than the things that you actually do do. And so, do you, do you have examples? Like, what do you what do, what do you look back at and say, "Thank God we didn't do that." Aside from you not not have a giant whale of a client that overly dominates your business. And I do know a lot of firms that have struggled with that. You know, when you get a really big client, like it's it's a lot of money, it's a lot of revenue sometimes, it's really hard to say no. But then they really struggle because they become beholden to that client and they they literally can't afford to lose the client. And if you can't afford to lose your client, it's really hard to make proper business decisions for the whole firm. That's exactly right. And I think that that happens a lot a lot a lot in a lot of different areas. So for example, we currently own our building. Uh, we've owned our building for for probably I think fifteen or sixteen years. But before we bought this building, six years earlier, we had the chance to either rent office space or buy a building. We were a much smaller firm at that point. And had we bought the building six years earlier, a lot of our revenues would have gone into the building. And as a result, I think it, and again, I don't know for sure, but I think it would have impacted our growth. It would have impacted who we hired. And we would have made a potentially sound short-term financial decision that would have cost us a lot of money in the long run. Instead, we ended up buying our building when we could get you know, uh, 17,000 square feet for the same price that we were renting 4,000 square feet. And that's enabled us to uh, grow this, you know, grow our staff into the building. We're now in a situation where we're actually having to explore putting on a second floor on this building, but we can stay in this building. But I, I do think your businesses, you know, it's kind of, I don't know what kind of, what, what plant grows to the size of the uh, container it's in, but that can happen. <laughs> that can happen in the business world too. So you have to be really careful about that. So just being, being willing to take a, a leap on saying we're, we're committed enough to the growth of business that you know I'm not just signing a multi-year lease. I'm I'm going to sign a multi-decade mortgage loan to buy or create a building so that I just I can control my destiny a little more and and control fixed costs for longer because obviously your mortgage doesn't inflation adjust up the way that your rent does if you continue to be a, a lessee all the way through. But not doing it earlier. Not doing it too early, because if you do it too early, then you've got too many resources going in a direction that's going to inhibit your growth. So it's kind of, but you, it's kind you of guys that did it like right. 10, 10 years into the business. We did it. Let's see. We probably owned this 16 years ago. Yeah, we've been probably 15 or 16 years in the business. So do you recall like how how big was the firm by by assets or revenue then? Like at least in your experience, what was big enough, but not, you know, like not too early, but not too late. The kind of the Goldilocks timing for you. We probably at that point we I'm guessing we probably had 20, 20 clients I mean twenty employees and you know maybe six six hundred under management maybe and now we have close to fifty employees and over two billion under management so but we had to we bought a building and this was another interesting thing we bought a building half of it was single person offices when we bought it and we we only could we only needed half the building. And so after a year, 
we we kicked out all the people that were in the single person offices, even though we didn't need the space. But we realized that their office was the most important thing to them, and it was the least important thing to us. And so it was taking our time, and and it wasn't fair to them, and it wasn't fair to us. So we just took over the rest of the building. But you know that that's one of the things. Like I was an agent, a sports agent, because my business partner's nephew was a quarterback for a national championship team and was going pro. And that that was I did that for a year and I hated it and it was terrible and it was bad for our clients. It took my eye off the ball with their existing clients because that business needed so much attention. And so we just stopped it. And so I think one of the other things that we did well is we didn't allow bad decisions to run. We 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 never worried about sunk costs. We would always make a decision that, you know, what what's the right thing to do irrespective of what we have into it. We haven't done multiple offices, even though our clients are all over the country. And the reason why we haven't is it's really hard to run a single office. It's really hard to find people. It's hard to maintain a culture. We don't know what it would be like to have some, you know, an office in Florida, an office in Arizona. It could work, but we just, we, we just don't feel like we've had to, uh, had to do that. So I, I would say that we're very incremental. We're not early adopters. We tend to uh, step into things rather than just be the first one in. So I kind of asked though, like how how do you avoid getting caught up with sunk costs? Because that's kind of human nature for most of us, and a really hard thing to to get over. Sometimes is is that just part of how you're wired? You're just very let's look forward and not backwards at what are already sunk costs, or do you have some you know system or mental framework about how you how you work through that challenge? Well, I think one thing is that, I don't know, some of it could be wiring, frankly, one of it. And again, I think some of it could be ego in the sense that we are not uncomfortable making mistakes and we are very comfortable exploring how the mistake occurred. And we like to share our mistakes with the group. We want to fix our client mistakes. That's one of the things, you know, one of the things early on, and again, I don't, I don't know if this story is real, but it's it's become so real to me that I feel it feels real, which is when Will and I were starting out, one of our clients, we made a trading error for a client who was 80 years old at the time. And the trade error would have cost us 10% of the revenues and the, our, the revenues of the firm at the time. And the client didn't know that we had made this error. And Will and I went back to the client and explained the error and, and fixed it. And I think what that did for us, and I don't, I, and again, this is the story that that I believe, is that what it taught both Will and me is that when we sit down with a with someone who's interested in joining the firm, we can tell them unequivocally that we're going to do what's right for you, and we have uh, evidence of that. Now we don't recount that story to people. We don't tell the you know the. the you, you don't exactly want to like bragged clients like we so do the right thing that we can blow up like hundreds of thousands of dollars for you but we'll totally own it when we do so it's all good (laughs) well trust me back then this was a long time ago it wasn't hundreds of thousands of dollars (laughs) but anyway so i think that that opened our eyes to what when you make mistakes and you're open about them uh, and everyone in the firm sees your openness around mistakes they're not inclined to cover up mistakes. And, you know, again, those are the things that can bring down firm compliance is the one thing I would say that all firms need to be 
really aware of because that's the no matter what you do that's the that's if you do something wrong from a compliance standpoint that's the thing that's going to blow your firm up i mean we have our compliance person on uh, on our executive team so she's involved in all the decisions that are going on and sometimes you know it means that that um she suggests things that that i wish she didn't so for example you know the baron's best advisors it's really clear in the baron's best advisors that you're supposed to only talk about the for, the clients for whom you're responsible for well we have a team approach so i'm not individually responsible for anyone and i'm responsible for everyone we didn't feel comf- we didn't feel comfortable submitting our name in the baron's best advisors where you know i know that other advisors, again, they they might view it differently and and be in there, even though they do operate their firms the same way we do. But from our standpoint, our compliance person was uncomfortable with it, and we we adhere to what she says. Well, and then I'm struck as well. Just the you want know, to talk about kind of I guess other mistakes avoided or mistakes that you learn from just the this hiring process. That you know, I still know a lot of firms that are wary about spending whatever is a hundred bucks to get Colby assessments or whatever exactly it costs uh, for prospective employees. So like, you know, that's kind of a lot of money to do that with a lot of prospective employees trying to figure out if they're right fit or not. You know, we'll, we'll just try to figure out the interviews with them. And, you know, you guys, I think you had said like you're spending thousands of dollars with your industrial psychologist evaluating employees. And, and I'm going to presume like, that that means you actually spend more than that because not everybody you put through the process is necessarily going to get the job at the end. So some of those you're like you're you're spending thousands of dollars to figure out you're not going to hire them. How do you how do you think about or rationalize that? Because that that adds up. Like that's <laughs> that's going to add up quickly. But the boy, the cost of a mistake is way more expensive. And one of the weaknesses that we have had in the past is that we're we we maybe we're too slow to act on misses. I think that that can create havoc in the firm. So when I look at it, you know, it's it the the savings is significant over the cost the, the upfront cost. You know, it's the challenge that all of us have. Why do we save for retirement? Right? We're we're sacrificing today for what the future may hold, but it's the same thing. I mean, the savings that we make by, by increasing our, our good hires is so significant that it's, it's really worth it. So, so can you paint a picture for us of just what the firm looks like today as of now? Sure. Today, right now, like I mentioned, we have around 50 people, we have of the 50 people slightly less than half are women we have a variety of professionals you know we have cfas and and C, you know lots of cfps and cpas a couple attorneys so a wide variety of um of experience we have 10 shareholders in the firm we have we're active in our succession plan. I'm 60. Will 60. I think he'll, he's turning 63. We and, have. And Will was Will was your co-founder from the start. Okay. Yep, Will's my co-founder, and and you know that's that's an interesting aside. We place a lot of value on loyalty. I mean, I've been in a 36 year marriage as as has Will. We've been partners for since 1987. So that's you know 32 or 33 years we've been partners together. And what that means is that. Our inclination is that when things are going wrong, 
to turn toward each other rather than to turn on each other. And I think that that from a partnership standpoint, that makes such a big difference. And a lot of times people are kind of grasping for what they should look for in a partner. I would say, Will and I have extremely different skills. For the first three or four years, I might have been a little bit resentful of Will because I was bringing in all the business and Will was making sure the, that we did what we said we were going to do. And and so uh, until I got over that ego piece and recognized that he was important to me, as important to me as, as uh, I was to him, I think that, that that would have been a challenge. And now from a shareholder standpoint, I think the reason our succession planning so far is working and obviously, you know, things could change, but we have a, a deep appreciation for what uh, G2 has done for the firm. And I think G2 appreciates what we've done. And that makes a giant difference. And so, again, I would say that it's it's it may be a lack of ego on both sides that, that we are really trying to distribute leadership uh, across the firm. We have uh, identified people. We have, a, we have an accountability chart. We understand who reports to who. We have a lot of people in the firm responsible for a lot of different areas, and we're willing to share that. We have accepted the fact that different people don't do things the way Will and I did them. And frankly, some of the people and some of the decisions that they're making are, are better than the ones that we, oh, that we were making. Oh, that's the hardest part to accept. <laughs> oh, God, they didn't do what I'm going to do, and it actually turned out better. Well, you know what? This event that we have tonight is exactly that. I have I had said for so long that we can't, you know, our clients are private, and we can't open up clients to events. And Becky, who's in charge of our business growth, fought me on that, and I conceded, and it's been a fantastic thing for the firm. And, and and if she fought me on it, I would say this about Will and me and, and other people in the firm. If she fought me on it and it didn't work, no one would say, I told you so, which is really, like I said, we really want to work with each other. We And, and we're, we're not trying to one-up the other person. You know, our, our, our overriding mission is to improve the collective lives of all we serve, which are clients, cohorts, and community. And we really try to we do try to live that, and I know that that's kind of a platitude, but but we actually try to believe believe that, and we also don't view the business as a zero sum game. So, for example, you know, one of the challenge always is that the part, you know, the founders are selling the past to the buyers of the future, but it's not a zero sum game. You know, we th- we think that it's actually things will will everyone can benefit from that. So. How big is the firm overall in terms of, I guess, assets, clients, revenue, however you, you do your primary metric? Well, so our assets, we, we have over $2 billion of assets. We have roughly 475 clients. We have, you know, the, the assets under management is not the best metric because different firm, you know, I always think EBIT does a better metric, but but assets under management is a good kind of kind of a measure. And again, for the way we charge, the way things work for us, our sweet spot generally is clients that are in the in the three million to fifteen million dollar range. But we have clients that are are bigger than that and we have some older clients that are smaller than that. Well, I'm just struck. I mean, over two billion of assets under management and and under 500 clients means your your average client is more than four million dollars, which 
for a firm having done it for 30 plus years where we, we tend to have some legacy clients around is, is a pretty hefty average. So is, is, have you actually cycled, like cycled older, smaller clients out of the firm as you've lifted up? Are you like, how do you handle the dynamics where you say your speech to your sweet spot today is three to $15 million and, I'm going to assume with if you've been doing this for for 30 plus years, you know, if we go all the way back, your original sweet spot was like clients who had three to fifteen thousand dollars when you were getting started in the mid 1980s. So you've added many zeros to to the ideal client profile. Well, what what really changed is we didn't start off as fee only, so we didn't become fee only until probably I'm guessing right around 90. Maybe ninety eight or ninety nine. So, we're, how did you start out originally? You, were you uh, under a broker dealer? We were fee plus commission. Yep. In fact, I was. Uh, I, we we were affiliated with a broker dealer. I actually ran a broker dealer when I was uh, before I started accredited. I didn't own it, but I was president of a broker dealer. And then I was so bad at that, and I hated it so much that I decided to join. Will and I decided to join each other and, and start accredited in eighty seven. In eighty-seven, so once we became fee only, our minimum account size to start was five hundred thousand dollars. So that was the so it's not as big of a leap as it would have been if if you know if thirty-two years in the business we were working with ten thousand dollars. But clients. still, going going from a a minimum of five hundred thousand to an average of four million, like I'm going to assume most of those five hundred didn't grow all the way to four million. That would be a a pretty big growth rate. So as as the average or the target clientele is lifted up, like how do you, how do you handle thirty odd years of legacy clients? We still work with them. We have, you know, again, the I would say that that our median client is probably not four million. Our median client might be, and I don't know what the answer is. Might might be lower than that. So an average versus a median is sure, is, sure, because you different. You get some big. You get some big clients that add a lot to the asset base, right? Yep, right. But again, we don't have the you know hundred million dollar client either. That's that's adding to the asset base. So I just think it's you know if you do a scatter chart or or uh, most of the people probably fall in the t- two to ten million dollar range. Okay. And so, do you have like tiered services? Do you handle them differently at these tiers or no? So just philosophy is your. You're a client. You get the same deal regardless of where you are on the uh, on the yeah, and that, scale. And that is a challenge, Michael. I mean, I would say that that when you think about what our challenges are, uh, I would say probably the the key things to pay attention to that we're paying attention to is how do we stay a small big firm? Scaling is not something that we we believe is possible with the way. With the way we do things, so we have never been motivated by AUM. For example, we've never said, "Okay, we're a two million dollar, two billion dollar firm. We want to be a ten billion dollar firm." We've always said we want to make sure that we're we're delivering to clients. We, we've increased the services that we deliver to clients, and that's we just believe that that will that will take care of ourselves. But we want to stay. We want to. We're a big firm now with fifty people, but we want to have a small profile in the sense of you know people feel like they're they're working with a small firm but logistics are really challenging and that's something that's going to continue to be challenging i would say that that the key thing for us there is again the fast work the stuff that that 
we have to do quickly, we have to be really good at. And the slow work, which is the interpersonal interactive work, uh, we have to be good at. And they're both very, very different. And I think the other thing is because we don't pay bonuses based on production and we don't pay, you know, bonuses in, in general. Instead, what we do is, like I said, we comp people in the high end of the uh, salary plus bonus range. A downturn can impact us because 80% of our operating costs are salaries. We're going to be impacted at the next, you know, uh, at the next market turn. And what happened to us in 2008, 2009 was that we did not lay off people. Our, our premise was that people needed more service rather than less. This was going to be an opportunity to get clients who were unhappy, and it actually increased our workload because that's what was happening. What we had said, I remember, I'll never forget this, we called a meeting in March of 2009 when things were basically at the bottom. We said, okay, folks, this is what we're doing. We're not laying anyone off. We're freezing salaries. We can't increase, give any salary increases. We're not going to be able to contribute to a profit sharing. And if things continue to stay this, stay like this, we'll have to set aside the 401k match. But fortunately, things turned around and we didn't have to do that. But, but you know, I don't know what's going to happen during the next downturn. I, I know that our, our belief is that the staff is what makes us unique. And so sacrificing staff in a downturn doesn't make sense to us. It's got to be daunting, though, just as you look on a, on a $2 billion base staring down the next bear market. You know, it's, it's a phenomenon to me that I've been struck by just as we've gone through the bear market cycles, even, you know, for my career of 20 years now, you know, 20 years ago when the tech crash hit, you know, even for firms that were independent RAs, like the average firm at 20 or $30 million, a big firm had one or $200 million. And so even with like a 20% market pullback, on a on a hundred million dollar base, like if you can get you know if you can get a half million dollar client here and there through the bear market, you can pretty much still grow your way or like business develop your way through this through this challenge. You 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 really only need like two or three new clients a month, which you know is a heavy load. But hey, if people are getting dislocated with their advisors because they're upset in a downturn, like you got a shot at it. You know, by the time you get to the two thousand eight financial crisis typical firm was hundreds of millions of dollars. And so now all of a sudden, even if you're diversified client bases there, like you get a 20% pullback, you might lose one or $200 million of, or at least like a hundred plus of assets under management. And now all of a sudden it's like, oh, so you want to make that back on, on like half million dollar clients? You Good luck because you need 200 of them which means if you want to make this back, like, oh, you need a new client every business day of the year, minus a few holidays. And then you get to $2 billion. And now, like, uh, I'm not, I hope I'm not, like, scaring you or anything, but, right, like, I'm sure you and Will have done this math at some point. Now, like, a 20-plus percent pullback is $400 million of pullback. And, you know, the, the good news is advisory firms tend to run really healthy profit margins. But, I think sometimes firm owners in the in the business forget, particularly when we're ten years into a bull market and get a little complacent. Like you actually have to run really good profit margins because you have to deal with the fact that next bear market could clock hundreds of millions of dollars off of your top line, which goes straight to the bottom line if you want if you don't want to fire or let go of any staff, and you have to be able to absorb that because if you 
don't have enough margins, your cash flow goes negative. If it goes negative, you have to fire people. If you have to fire people, you reduce services in the middle of a bear market. And now you can like literally blow up your firm because you understand totally your clients agree. when they're panicking and now the downward spiral goes. I, I totally agree. And you know, I, I, I think that, that that's a really important point. And I think a lot of firms, I would say f- for us, one of the things again that's changed probably over the years is that we're not a practice, we're a business. And we have to maintain or we have to pay attention to our EBITDA much more closely for a couple different reasons. One is that we have shareholders and the shareholders have to pay down their debt. So the banks require a certain amount of EBITDA. Uh, secondly, we have to make sure that that the business is sustainable for all the families that we're serving and all the all the uh, employees that are here. And so what we pay really close attention to is that if our EBITDA is too high, we haven't invested enough in the business. And our, if our EBITDA is too low, we don't have a sustainable practice. And so we have to make sure that that we're managing within this range of EBITDA that allows us to have a sustainable practice. And we really believe in sustainability. So out of curiosity, like where where do you put those guardrails? I mean, I'm assuming you probably do it in percentages like profit margins as uh, as opposed to hard dollars. But like what do you view as a healthy profit margin range for an advisory firm? Like what's what's too low to be risky? What's too high to say you're you're probably not reinvesting enough? You know, I think I really actually think it depends on the advisory firm and and the kind of practice that they're running and the flexibility that they have. I think that there's, I I would say that that some of the things that we have been able to do to manage our expenses are the fact that we own our building, our rental costs are probably lower than most advisory firms for for a a, a building this. Fifteen years of not having rent increases probably compounds quite nicely for you. After a while, hurts in the hurts in the early years, but it kind of gets nice now. Yeah, and I think you know the other thing that large firms like ours have is we do have some economies of scale related to things like technology and and things like that. But again, you know, 80% of our costs are salaries. So that's going to affect that that in that that is the one thing that is really hard to adjust in in bad markets. But we have enough I, I you know again we'll, we'll have to see what what happens, but we were in in 2008, I can promise you in 2008 and 2009 we weren't getting fat on distributions. No. No, I mean for most firms I know even if they ran pretty healthy margins, you know, to distributions basically went to zero or near zero for uh for for a year or two there I mean, I mean i think that's part of the the driver around the profit margin discussion i'm not sure is is talked about enough in firms particularly once you just you get to the point where it's a business meaning it's, it's beyond just you like there's other advisors and employees and people who count on your ability to pay their paychecks to have their jobs which then is how clients get service so that they stay clients of the firm that you know, unless you have a pretty uniquely flexible cost structure, you know, you pay your people a lot of variable compensation. You know, I, I get really nervous anytime I hear about advisory firms that have profit margins lower than 20%. Because, uh, you know, even if your clients are reasonably balanced, you know, show me a really nasty bear market that goes down 40 something from top to bottom and like your revenue is going to get clocked by a solid 20%. Like it, it happens. And if you're running profit margins under 20, when that bear market comes, like y- you're going to have to fire people because you don't have any flexibility. And even if you have some flexibility, 
that usually only goes so far. I mean, you can take away people's bonuses and uh, profit sharing plans and, and perks and the rest, but like you really only get so long to do that. And, and if you're running it too tight and you take away too much of them, you know, you might spread the pain so you don't have to fire anyone. But the firm up the street that ran healthier margins that rebounds faster than you will recruit all your employees away <laughs> the year after the bear market if you, if you don't have enough room to, to recover that quickly. And that's absolutely true. And I will tell you, I mean, for us, we, we absolutely view the bear markets as turf grabs for us because we will pick up clients. There's more client, you know, more client churn in general, and we will pick up good staff. So in an environment like this where everyone's hiring and things like that, it's, it's, it's much more of a challenge to find people and, and, and grow. So I agree with you. And I think, I, I don't think that people pay enough attention to the business aspect. And I will tell you from, from my standpoint, again, when you think about a partnership that I have, I have really been fortunate because my Will is an internal guy. I'm an, I'm more an external guy. I'm the big picture. Will's the detail. And now we have a group of uh, other shareholders who are looking at, at, at all of these things. And so we've been really fortunate to have a, I would say, kind of a comprehensive view of the business as well, coming at things from different angles rather than just, you know, being everyone being similar and thinking the same things. So speaking of this dynamic around succession planning, you know, sharing equity, allowing other people to participate, having more shareholders, can you talk about like how, you know, how that works at at accredited? Like how do how do you decide who gets to participate in equity? Is equity given? Is it earned? Is it bought? Like how does how does it work for someone that wants to be a, a successor shareholder in the firm? Sure. Well, the way it works now, Will, Will and I are down to 30% ownership each. And our intent is over the next 10 years to be you know, basically out of ownership. It doesn't necessarily mean we would be out of the business unless the shareholders at, dime, at, at that point in time don't feel like we're creating enough value for the business. We have banking relationships. And so people are buying the, uh, our shares, and they are using bank financing. And the way the bank financing is set up is that from the profit distributions, 35% of the distributions goes to the employee or the shareholder for taxes, and 65% goes to the bank to pay down debt. The challenge around that is that anyone who says owning stock is in lieu of comp is that's not the case because it will take. Because they're not getting any of the comp. They're like 30, 35% goes to Uncle Sam and 65% goes to the bank. Now, obviously, at some point, the loan gets paid off and then the 65% that went to the bank you, goes to you. But I'm, I'm presuming that's like seven odd years down the line. Right. And, and it also, you know, they're continue, they want to continue to buy stock so right. that con- continues to prolong yeah, so he, the, when you're finally about to pay off your loan you just take on another one yeah that's, <laughs> because that's you're sort of because way. you're kind of snowballing your equity bigger obviously that gets good in the long run but it 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 doesn't pay the bills or put food on the table in the interim right. and what's 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 kind of interesting about that i would say and it's not necessarily a great thing but when you think about you know for example will and i when we were growing our firm God, we went for a lot of years without taking much salary. I mean, we I, I, we went seven years before you know before we could say that if our wives weren't working, 
we wouldn't wouldn't have had a business. So that's sort of what you know. These now what the, what's different about shareholders today is that they're getting market comp for the work that they're doing. But but really, the stock ownership, at least currently, is just a way for them to build their net worth. It's not necessarily building their cash flow. We have a group that that uh, meets to the any shareholder can nominate another employee to become a shareholder uh, and that that gets that's considered on an annual basis and then since will and I are selling roughly six percent of the stock of the company meet with another uh, one of the shareholders who's not on the executive committee to determine how that's getting distributed to the rest of the existing shareholders how they who gets to buy what we have tranches basically for different levels of of ownership so where people can expect to reach a certain level of ownership over their course of their ownership uh, unless they move into a different tranche and those tranches are a little bit dependent upon functional functions in the firm and it's decided by the other shareholders who's who's in what tranche so it's a very i would say it's a it's a, a relatively open process Will and I will be interesting. Will and I are reaching to the the point where we won't be majority shareholders anymore. Two two more years or so at the at the current pace. Yep, and so we'll we'll see what happens from that point. But again, I think that what we have done really well as an organization is is we're, we communicate really well with each other. And again, that's not that hasn't always been the case. But we've learned, you know, that whenever something goes wrong, it is such a great gift because you you get to get so much better and you know things that are painful in the short run always tend to be a benefit in the long run and and that's what's happened with us for you know many many years and many times you know it's not like things have been a have been perfect for us and so so how do you value shares in this environment because i know just valuations for well for advisory firms in general is still widely debated but in Internal succession plans tends to be even more actively debated. So, how, how do you handle the, I guess at least the sometimes sticky issue of just how you're valuing shares as you do these transitions? It's it's a multiple of EBITDA. So that's that's you know, we, we don't we don't do you know it's not a I've never understood the the multiple uh, multiple of sales because EBITDA is so different for her firm. So so we've done a multiple of EBITDA again. Well, that's what ensures the the thing actually produces the cash to help cover the cost. You know, it, when firms are reasonably profitable, multiples of revenue work okay because they just recreate multiples of of EBITDA anyways. You know, if, if your firm runs at a twenty five or thirty percent profit margin and you sell it for six or seven times, seven or eight times free cash flow, you will end out at two times revenue because you know. Seven times thirty percent margins is two point one times gross revenue. So the like you can get back there, but you know that quickly falls apart. Then when you get back to firms who were saying earlier that don't necessarily run healthy profit margins, if if other firms are selling for six to eight times free cash flow, but you're only running fifteen percent margins, you're not going to get two times revenue. You're going to get one times revenue. And you know larger firms sometimes get bigger multiples, but it still only works if you've got healthy EBITDA in the first place. Yep. And I think, you know, the other thing that I would say, and this is really important, and again, this is this is where I've seen some firms kind of get messed up on their succession plan. You know, the founders who are selling 
still have to have a vision for a future that they may not be part of, because otherwise they won't be investing in the future of the firm. And, and so Will and I place a huge value on the next generation being successful. And if they're not successful, and we don't, you know, what's interesting, Michael, is that we don't, we're not personally guaranteed on the bank debt or anything like that. So that's an unusual, the, a because lot of the, banks. Because the buyers are, are, are putting their own guarantees in the line, I guess. And they are, but the buyers in general don't have the resources, you know, don't have the, you know, don't have the collateral other than the stock, but you know, that, that and to, so to who's support the, it. Who's the bank you're working with that's willing to to do this and structure these arrangements. We have two local banks that we work with. Okay. And so you're not yeah. you're, you're not necessarily working with some of the the big national firms that are trying to do all this M&A uh, financing for advisory firms. Can I can I ask who the local banks are if I guess other advisors are curious? In our market we're using Tradition Bank and Minnesota Bank and Trust. And this was not a financeable transaction for US Bank. It wasn't a financial financeable for Wells Fargo. They don't, they don't, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. They don't finance on cash flow. I've got, I'm in, I'm in a group called Young Presidents Organization. I've got a, one of the people in my group has an $800 million company with $18 million of profits and they can get any bank financing they want. And we have a much, you know, we have a, not in gross dollar amount of profits, but, you know, from a margin standpoint, I mean, we're, we have a much more profitable business and, and, you know, those banks won't even look at us. We've seen it as well. I mean, I think a lot of advisors have, it's part of why some of these niche players like Live Oak Bank have gotten traction in in the, in the advisor space. Cause if you, if you can't find that local advisory firm or that, sorry, that local bank that actually understands or is willing to understand advisory firms, you, you quickly get stuck in this realm where like, I have a, a high profit margin, wonderfully profitable advisory firm with clients who stick around for an average of 30 years. And you go to a bank and they're like, well, where's your collateral? I'm like, well, I have goodwill with clients who stick around for like 30 years. They're like, yeah, we don't really see that as hard collateral because we can't foreclose on it. So we're not, we're not lending you anything against your wildly profitable, incredibly sustainable, successful growth business. It, it's It's kind of fascinating to me in the in the current environment, but it's what's opened the door again, I think for, for some banks to specifically come into this space and say, we understand, you know, ca- lending against sustainable cash flows. So do shareholders are buying and still have to come up with down payments? Like what do, what do typical terms look like? They don't have to come up with down payments. The terms are simply the, uh, they, they get the, the 35% for taxes and the 65% goes to the bank. Interesting. And and how many years does that typically run? It depends how long, uh, what what kind of profits we growth we have. So you know, you're you're most likely, as you described it, you know, we're looking at depending on the kind of markets, anywhere between five to nine years. Okay, right. So it just depends how quickly the growth goes. So it, it, is it literally like so? It, does the bank give them a fixed payment they have to cover and it just so happens a 65% distribution usually does it? Or do they literally just take like a variable percentage of EBITDA, whatever it happens to be? So if it grows faster, you have to pay the bank more, but you'll pay it off faster. And if you don't, the loan stretches out. Yeah. No, the, it's the 65-35 regardless of what those distributions are. Oh, interesting. So you you can't even... You can't grow faster to get free cash flow, you know, to make your minimum bank payment and get free cash flow 
If you grow faster, the bank just says, awesome, you'll pay off the debt faster, and then you'll get your full distributions. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things that's, that, that happens is there's, there's always kind of this tension between how much stock they'll finance and how quickly the stock gets paid down. So remember that since every year, 65% of the previous loans are essentially, you know, getting paid, 65% of distributions are going to paying down loans. The amount of outstanding debt decreases each year, except new debt gets created through those purchases. And, and so the banks, continue to get a little bit more on the hook every year. And and talk to us again of just how you decide who gets access to this. So it's it like it's a committee of the shareholders that decides who else is going to be introduced as a shareholder because I know you've you have had the history of bringing in a shareholder as a partner and then having them leave, which is challenging for any firm. So I, I guess I'm curious like what did what did you learn from the experience of having a partner come in and then leave that sort of drives now the way you decide who you're going to introduce as a new shareholder? I think there's a few different different things about that. And I think that, that one is, again, making sure that the shareholders share the values of the firm and the direction and agree that the direction of the firm is a direction that they want to be going in. I think a, a second thing that we've done is we actually have changed our buy-sell. So liquidity is really created at a certain age so that we wouldn't have the situation where people could, you know, if they wanted to leave, they could leave anytime and create liquidity because it was a challenge when founders are trying to sell their shares if other people were leaving, uh, if other people would leave for whatever reason, then the founders would end up not being able to sell their shares. So we were trying to work through how that would work out. And so that's been a, a big change. I think wait, wait. the other thing that's... I, I just, I want to make sure I understand what's going on there. So the, so you kind of have the classic challenge, like your founders, you're trying to sell, then a new shareholder leaves. So you have to buy them out, which then creates a problem for the founders because you now have to buy back the shares of the departing shareholder when your whole goal was to sell shares. <laughs> And they're like boomeranging back to you. So, so what's what have you structured now that that avoids that? We have uh, in our in our uh, effectively in our buy sell, unless someone leaves for you know like disability or or uh, at death, uh, if and I believe it's fifty or fifty five before that they essentially just get book value rather than share price. Oh, interesting. So you so in essence, like you you have to stay to a certain age to get the full value of your shares. And I think, you know, if you think about it, it was Will's and my goal to create a vehicle for for owners of the firm to create long-term wealth. It wasn't the objective to create kind of the, a short-term. Interesting. You know, yeah. So short-term it, wealth. It's, so, it's kind of a version of like an I don't know. I was going to say like an option vesting schedule kind of thing. Obviously, it's not literally that, but there is this dynamic like you have to stay to a certain age to get the full fair market value if you want to sell. Otherwise, you know, we'll give you some value when you exit. We'll let you recover your your dot you what you put in with book value. But like, if you want the pop, you got to stay to see it through. Right, and you and you know, if for some reason you're upside down on your loan, you don't have to. We we take that over, so that's they you know, no one would have to 
Okay, so you kind of give come, them up. Come the the yeah. the good and bad news of so the put option at original purchase prices. You know, if it's underwater, we'll eat it. But if it's up, you don't you don't get the upside unless you stay to a certain age and and stick it through. Right, and that's just right. spelled out in your in the terms of the buy sell agreement and the shareholder agreement in the first place. Yes. Yep. Interesting. Yep. So so from your end, like I do have to ask how just. How do you and Will think about this dynamic of selling away equity of cash flows that you you, you could have just kept and held on to? Like, you know, the the I mean, I know a lot of firm owners that have struggled this, particularly with financing options like yours, where essentially the bank is a hundred percent financing that, you know, the 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 buyers are getting access to the shares with no cash out of pocket of cash that you could have just kept. And enjoyed those profits, and obviously, at some point down the road, you want to, you have to sell it. But you know, you, you also would have harvested a lot of value in the meantime. Like, how do you think through in your heads, particularly when you created as much wealth as you have by growing from zero to two billion dollars in the first place? Like, how do you think about that dynamic and trade off of transitioning shares? People are all, all like, you know, selling shares to them, but selling shares to them that fully self finance when you could have just kept those economics yourself. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's an interesting question because I, I think that that's where a lot of founders get tripped up. And I think that the way the way Will and I have thought about it, and, and I want to stress that th- this doesn't make Will or me angels because this is still a business transaction. We're getting paid fairly for our stock. We're getting paid less than if we'd sold it to private equity, but we're, we're getting paid fairly for our stock. But what we really believe in our hearts is that we want a sustainable business and a sustainable business is better for our clients. Long-term it's better for ourselves because it's, you know, we might want to stay connected to the business if we're allowed to, you know, into our, I I can't imagine, you know, retiring to play golf. So we, and we want to create opportunities for that next generation to be able to reap some of the successes that we've had. You know, it's unlikely that, that, you know, since Will and I, own so much of the company for so long, you know, they, the company would have to grow at really bit high rates for, for, you know, a, a 3% shareholder to kind of benefit the way Will and I did, but they could still have huge benefits from the, from the company. And, and we just believe it in our hearts that that's, that's the best thing for everyone involved. And, you know, I don't know, you know, again, again, it's like these counterfactuals, would people stay if we didn't, you know, if they, if they weren't owners, probably, you know, I think many would, I don't know that all would, but, but I, it just, it just felt, feels like it's the right, right thing to do. And you know what, I I will tell you, I think that the next generation of owners, they're really thinking about what's it going to be like for the people behind them. I just think that that is just the, it's the personality of the firm and, and, People who don't have that personality don't last in this firm. They just don't. It just isn't. It won't work for them for a lot of different reasons. It's part of that. Just the the this we over me team culture environment in the first place. Yep, it really is. And again, I, I have to say, it's it's recognizing how many different people contributed to the success. That no that that no one person did this. I mean, this was a group effort from day one so as you look back over the years what's surprised you the most about trying to build your own 
advisory business? That's an interesting question. I think there are a few different surprises. I think one surprise, how easy it was and how hard it was. And what I what I mean by that was that you know we we didn't set out to grow a business like this. It it happened through having great clients tell other clients about us. So that that was easy. I think the hard part was all the little things that that could bring us down that didn't. And some of the, you know, good fortune that we had, you know, I mean, gosh, we started the business in 87. That was a pretty good time to start an advisory business. Yeah, just, you know, have a ginormous market (laughs) crash in your first year. Yeah, but but once you survive that, you know, it was fine. And, you know, I think that that, um, as you have seen for your own career, Michael, there were, when I started, you, it was harder for you, I would say, you know, you, you became prominent in a field that was way more crowded than when I was active in the field, because, you know, it was, it was a nascent wealth management was sort of a nascent industry when, when I started in in 1982 and by in 1987, it still wasn't very big. So I got to be, create some notoriety when it was, I think, much easier to do so. So I think, you know, the people stuff, I would say that all our mistakes and all our challenges have always been people challenges. It's never market challenges. It's, it's you know, hiring, either not hiring the right people. It's moving past, you know, the skill set of some people who are really good uh, when the firm was smaller, but but where we needed different skills when the firm grew. I think that that was hard. Recognizing that some of our own skill sets have been moved past. You know, I'm a, I was really great for the firm. Um, you know, 10 years ago, I think some of the things that I do are still beneficial, but gosh, it's, it's a lot of other people do a lot more than, than what I'm capable of. I, th- I think there's an interesting piece there that a lot of firms overlook as they grow that just this dynamic as the business grows and gets more complex, like it really is possible that that person you hired for a role who's been fantastic at it and is just crushed at it for three or five or 10 years can't do the job that needs to be done now because the firm, you know, the, the complexity of the firm grew beyond the original job that they took and they either just they haven't grown and developed with it or, uh, you know, the really hard part sometimes like they, they're just not up to the task of being able to learn to do the more complex role and the more complex the business that exists today. If, if there's one thing I probably see most often in, in firms that go through these kinds of growth cycles that you have of, you know, from, from zero, from just we're scrapping it out with our own two hands to being a multi-billion dollar firm, it's that either the firm, you know, outgrows the skill set of some very valued employees and they can't figure out how to work around that. And then eventually the limitations of that employee become a, a limitation for the growth or the success of the entire business. Or for some firms, like it's the founder skill set <laughs> that gets that gets outgrown. Like, you know, the things you need to get a firm from, you know, zero to a hundred million or even zero to a billion is not necessarily the skills it takes to get you from one to two or two to five or whatever you want to grow to from there. Cause you've got to 
different business with different kinds of complexity challenges. And, you know, firms outgrowing key employees or even founder abilities who can't then go hire the right people often becomes the the thing that flattens a firm eventually. Yeah. I think the other thing, and I don't know that this is a mistake, but but I think a lot of firms might look to the outside as a way to solve their problems, as opposed to figuring out who who's capable in the inside. And, and I think the challenge, so we went out and hired an outside COO uh, a few years ago, and that was a disaster, a complete disaster for a whole bunch of different reasons. But one of the reasons was that um, we probably hired them. I don't know if Will would necessarily say this, but we probably hired him to do the things that we didn't want to do. When you bring in an outside person, they don't understand the planning business unless they come from another planning firm, which is you know unusual. And the and the planning business is really a client centric business. And so sometimes this, the the outside person is just looking at at things quantitatively instead of qualitatively and that was not going to that was not going to work for us. So, so that and, became your your problem they I guess no no offense to the MBAs but like they MBAed it a little too hard this yeah, exactly. this quantitatively that, looks great in the business projections so we're going to go ahead and do this and from the client centric perspective you're you're screaming like no no we can't do that. Yep. Exactly right. And and again, one of our challenges was in order to create viability for the position, we had to cede a certain amount of control that turned out not to work. And now the way we're working, you know, we've been using uh, EOS, you know, traction, you know, that and we've been we love that, but but anyway, what we have is in, we have internal people filling these roles. We've identified kind of who our successors are going to be. They know it. We're building out the skill sets, and it's just it is just so much more comfortable, and it's so much better. So when we hire an outside person coming into the firm, it can be someone from like for like HR or you know a function that that you know is more a supportive function one rather than one that's that's calling shots that are going to affect clients in ways that are may not be good interesting and so is that kind of your your hiring philosophy now like support functions will hire externally but you know, future leadership positions we're trying to groom them internally yes yeah and that's you know again it could change the next generation might say they want to do an acquisition. They might want. I mean, what we have to be comfortable with is that, you know, the next group of leaders will see and do things differently than us for good reasons. And you know what? They're going to make some mistakes that we made, and there'll be different mistakes. And it's all going to work out because they have a a, a framework and a and and a foundation that I think will encourage them to challenge the decisions that they've made and reverse course when they need to, which is which is how Will and I have operated. So can you talk about how your your own role in the firm has changed over the years? Sure. I, I you know I think one of the things that hasn't changed and it's still I would say exists today is that I'm probably I would say head of strategy and more of the big picture person who's kind of thinking about what's going to happen 10 years from now rather than 10 minutes from now. I still have a significant client role. I still 
I still bring in a fair amount of new clients, mostly on, you know, just one of the things that happens is that you often, one of the challenges for a lot of financial planning firms in growing, and I don't know if this is still true, but it it seems like it is, is that you tend to work with people who are in similar situations yep. to uh, your own. Most most advisors basically work with themselves plus or minus 10 years, uh, almost up and down the line. I find it's pretty consistent. <laughs> okay. So if you look at me now, who's, you know, 60 years old, has built this, you know, has, has been part of building a business, you know, I've got, I'm in a financial position that I wasn't in 20 years ago. And so I'm in a group of people that are also in financial positions that make them good clients for the firm. So it's easier for me to bring in those kind of people sometimes than other people. And Will's the same way. Will, who who for years wasn't really uh, doing much on the business development side, is actually doing a lot in that area now. And it's, like I said, it's just kind of where we are in the, in, in the lives that we live. So we're st- I'm still doing that. I'm involved in a lot of outside things that benefit the company I was, you know, for example, I was on the presidential search committee for the new president at the University of Minnesota, which is kind of a high profile thing. I was chair of the foundation at the university. So I'm doing a lot of uh, outside activities that that raise the notoriety of the firm. And I still write regularly. I'm, I write for the Star Tribune twice a, twice a month and I write for Financial Advisor magazine. I'm spending a lot of time, I think that I'm spending more time with the leaders of the firm just talk, talking to them about leadership. I'm trying to spend more time with the rest of the company talking about relationships because that's what everything for me is a relation relationship. And I'm really trying not, I, I, I don't think I use the word, I don't think I use the word prospect in our talk because I kind of view, view people as people and I don't want to make them an object and a prospect becomes an object. So um, I'm trying to help in those ways. And I think that most people would say that, that I'm, I, I create kind of a lightness to the firm. I, I don't get too stressed out in that. That is something, you know, I've got a daily practice, which has really helped me with that, but, but I don't get too high or too low. And so we went through this thing where we were looking, we, we had at one of our study groups, there was an expert on knowledge transfer and, and that uh, expert was trying to ask us critical knowledge transfer what what the next generation needs for me and I thought it was going to be about client stuff and the two people who were there said we need basically your equanimity how you don't how you can step back from the emotional stuff and just kind of say okay this is really what the right thing to do is or this is what the best thing to do is and we should just do it irrespective of kind of what that what that might cost and so we've got people now I think who think uh, more like that but that's I think something that I continue to add. So what was the low point for you in this journey? What was the low point? I I think we had a few low points. I would say Will and I, it took way longer to get a a start than either of us thought. You mean just just getting getting clients going, getting revenue going? Yeah. Yeah. Getting, you know, for us to make more money than our secretary did. I think that was a, how, that was a low, how, <laughs> low point. How, how long did that take? I think it, I, I'm guessing, and again, you know, it's hard to remember, but I'm guessing at least five, five to seven years. And again, if our wives weren't working and neither of them had big jobs, but if, if our wives weren't doing well, we wouldn't have been able, I don't think we would have been able to do this. That's one low point. And I, I think it's an important point for 
folks that are are starting out and launching firms today that that just you know you can look at the firm as you can look at a firm like yours exists say like two billion dollars under management and fifty employees and you know we can all do more or less the you know the revenue and valuation economics on the wealth that's been created and now it's going to successor generations who participate and like you know there's a there's a lot of economic opportunity on that plate now. And it's just kind of this parenthetical, like, oh, and by the way, for the first five years, we made less than our entry-level administrative staff. Five years <laughs> of making less than your entry-level administrative staff. Like, it's, it's uh, I mean, I think there's a powerful thing of just how hard it is for basically everyone in in the early years to get going. You know, from, you know, it, it was really hard, you know, losing partner that was that was hard for a lot of different reasons um and one of the you know i mean again the there's a whole bunch of different stories about that but but one of the things that that i i realized and and it's and it's a challenge for me is that people are everything for me you know that to me is the and so when something doesn't work out if it's with a client or for with with a staff person or a partner that that has an impact on me and it's not and it's and it's one that that is painful it strengthens the business but personally it's a it's a painful painful thing and then i think right now michael i think the hardest part for me is being in the business as long as i have we have a lot of deaths and and of our clients and, and I can't tell you how sad that is. It's just these are people who basically we've helped them, you know, kind of live the life they want to live and and then and then and they they lived the entire thing. And they lived the entire thing and and I don't think that will ever be easy for me and that's we're just going to have more of it as I continue to age and they do. So what advice would you give to young advisors that are are getting started today i guess like what do you what do you know now you wish you knew 20 or 30 years ago as as you and will were getting started you know i i think i think we were fortunate in this one aspect and this is what i really think is the most important thing and and that is you know will and i are very different people but we've we share value we've shared values of what matters and I think advisors sometimes try to under try to figure out what they want their business to be before they figure out who they want to be. I think that that that's why so many advisors have successful businesses and kind of bankrupt lives. And so I would that that's the piece that I think that matters the most because then it's gonna you're gonna have the greatest chance of building a practice that's going to be aligned with your values rather than having a practice that creates those values. So as we wrap up, this is a a podcast about success. And and one of the themes that always comes up is just even the word success means different things to different people. And so you built what certainly anyone would objectively call a very successful business with billions of dollars and dozens of employees. Uh, but how do you define success for yourself at this point? Well, I think there's a there's a lot of different ways. So in the business, I would say I really like the people I work with and I really like my clients. And we've been able to contribute to them 
and in ways that are meaningful. And we've been able to contribute as a firm uh, and individually to the community. So I think that that's really, you know, we've, I think we've had some impact. I'm married to the same woman. I've got a good relationship with my, uh, our, you know, with my two daughters who are, you know, like I said, 26. I have friends that are important to me. I appreciate, I still, I still appreciate, I, I kind of face every day with awe. I mean, I, I am appreciative of what's going on in my life. And I'm appreciative of so many people who have helped me in a lot of ways, be it my study groups. I've got, you know, I've had great study groups, be it, you know, I mean, people like you, you know, who contributes to the greater, greater good. I mean, I, I just, I feel really, really lucky to have been placed in a role where I've had, I've got to be with so many great people. Yeah. And I love just the way that gets then espoused in the, in the culture and the values of the firm as well, that, you know, you I think you you kind of live your life with a, you know, we is greater than me mentality. And then that gets reflected in the firm, the culture, the way that you give other people equity opportunities. And, and you know, it, it kind of is multiplied forward in some really cool ways to see, Ross. Well, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, absolutely. Thank you for, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Well, it was a lot of fun. I uh, Like I said, I'm honored that you asked me to do this. Absolutely. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the member section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.